I'm just going to go and get something, if I may, which I'm sure. Please, absolutely. Which is the actually the album sleeve. That would be wonderful. We got to get a live look here at the album sleeve, the magic of it all. Strobs, new record, new music. Brother Shane, we love this stuff, man. We love those previews, huh? Yeah, it's fantastic. uh, Fantastic record. So, yeah, the songs I've heard online on Spotify so far are just amazing. And David has the looks like a magical 12 string. 12 string guitar in the background. <laughs> uh, well, the 12 string guitar that uh, belongs to a friend of mine around the corner. I'm restringing it for him. Right. My action guitar that I have here that I play and write and sing on is this wow. one. Wow. Oh, that's beautiful. Beautiful. Tell us about what's the story behind that one? The story behind this one is the most amazing story. I saw it at it's a, a Sweet 16, Gretsch Sweet 16. Beautiful. I saw it advertised on eBay about, must be about 20 years ago, and I paid $200 for it. it was, wow. Oh, <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, You've done a lot of writing with it, I, I imagine. I've done a lot of playing with it and writing with it. Beautiful. It's a glorious did you, thing. Did you have other, other Gretsch guitars before? Uh, I, I've got another one, exactly the same model, but in the Gretsch orange color. Yeah. And, uh, no, I had my other two guitars were a Gibson uh, Chet Atkins 12 string and a Gibson Chet Atkins six string electric, both of them. Very and nice. they're lovely things. They're, they're vintage guitars. They're from the 90, early 70s. $200, yeah. you must have must have had to pinch yourself. <laughs> well, no, they're, they're, they're probably about $2,000. Yeah. Wow. You know, they're very, very collectible. Because I think what it was, it was that Gretsch made a whole bunch of them for a trade show. And they made them in all different colors, blue, yellow, uh, that red, orange, purple. And there's a whole range of them, but I think they must have made only a very limited number. And because they were just trade shows, they suddenly decided to sell them all off. And mm. uh, I, I just thought, well, I'll get one and see what it sounds like. And I picked it up at in a, in New York when I arrived. Somebody had, had, received, had picked it up for me, and I opened the case and I went, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> it was like that, that color has mellowed now. It was really vivid. Yeah. But it's a lovely thing. Yeah, I, I started getting well, I think Shane's son too, you know. We both we we've all been bonding over guitars. I mean, I you know, I, I picked up a, a 50s or a, a there's a reissue of a, a Les Paul standard and it, just opening it for the first time, it was like, you know, I mean, it's it's a, it's a reissue. It's not it's not a classic one, but it's still so cool. Like to get that feel, and you see it in the plush, and you know, you you play it, you know, and you just get your fingers dirty, and uh, it just there's nothing like that feeling. No, there isn't, and, and it's just a lovely. I'm having to uh, play it a lot more than I have done because we've got a big show coming up. Uh, we're playing to twenty five thousand people, and it's going to be my farewell show. Yeah, because uh, I'm I can't do any more live shows. Unfortunately, I've got a condition called MDS, 
mm. for D for dog, S for sugar. Um, and it's actually myelodysplastic syndrome. Mm. It's a very rare disease. It's a blood disorder. Uh, but it means that my immune system is absolutely virtually nil. And therefore, mm. I have to be very, very careful where I go, very careful what I do. Don't shake hands with people. Avoid people with, with coughs like the plague because otherwise I, I'll get an infection. And if I get an infection, I have to go straight to hospital. Oh so gosh. it's a very difficult thing to live with. It's like living with COVID all over again, except that mm. it's, uh, it, I, I have to be, it, it, this is for the rest of my life. It's, it's not curable. I just got to learn to live with it. So I'm, I'm doing one big show to finish, uh, to finish my live performances. And that's with Fairport Convention and their Crop Ready Festival. And that's in wow. August. Be a bit of fun for for someone who's toured like you did. Is that how hard is it to say goodbye? Um, I I'd just be sad that I can't come back to the states and play because there's lots of people who'd, who would love to see us play again and in Canada as well. But it that's that's one of those things. I I can't get on an aeroplane because I might pick up an infection. So yeah. uh, it's sad, but I'm going to carry on recording. There's no way that will stop me recording. You know, there's a little studio just half an hour down the road that's got a separate room for doing guitars and vocals in. Then you've got the control room next door to it. And then on the other side of the control room, there's the studio itself. So there's nothing to stop me going in there because I'll be isolated from the other musicians. It, it, and I'll still be able to communicate with them wonderfully. Uh, so that, that's all set up and ready to go. So this this upcoming show is, uh, I mean, there's there must be so many emotions or just so many feelings you you have going into it. Uh, what I want to do is to is to make it a retrospective through the years of the songs that people know us for. I just don't want to do the modern songs and sell them. You can't just go and do your new album because people want to come and see you and remember the songs you've done. So we're going right back almost to the very beginning, doing songs like Part of the Union, we'll obviously do, uh, lay down, but go back even further than that. Songs from the Witchwood album, uh, wow. and and even further back than that probably and i think the audience will appreciate that uh, because they're, they're the songs that they grew up on and our audience has grown up with us and if you think about it it's what has carried the straws forward throughout the years has been the songs the personnel has changed can you know always evolving and straws evolve uh, but the lovely thing about it is that songs have told a story as they've progressed through the years and what they are is the songs about what's happening in my life as it is, but also they're often a reflection of what's happening in society around us. Yeah. Uh, on the on the new record, uh, Dave, the you know magic of it all, uh, it kind of feels like a, a walk backwards through time. Is, is that can I, can that be a a pr presumption? It there it is. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Is that like a, it's, it feels like a walk through through time? Uh, and I presume the career of, of this band is that kind of the way you were looking at it when you were writing this? No, the, the songs possibly evolved a slightly different order to what the running order of the record is. In fact, the first song that was written for the album was Slack Draw Alice, and the second song was Paris Nights. So uh, they it, it, it evolved and it evolved. 
emotionally, I think. Uh, I, I always put the guitar in different tunings. Uh, I, I don't work in conventional tunings. And that goes back to the days when I was a banjo player playing bluegrass music. In fact, I was more influenced by the old Appalachian uh, banjo players. And I realised that they tuned their banjos when they sang those mournful songs from the Appalachians. They they lifted the second string of the banjo up to a C instead of a B. Mm. And so I thought, I wonder what that would sound like on a guitar. And so I started to tune my guitar differently. So I tuned it to banjo tunings. But then, of course, I've had banjos only got four strings. So what do you do with the bass strings? So I had to retune those as well. And suddenly I evolved all these different tunings. In fact, if we go back to the, the first live album we did, which was the first one with Rick Wakeman, there's one song, uh, which is just a collection of antiques and curios, when I used three different tunings in the same song. <laughs> to, to <some> <laughs> because it, it's, it's all based around the C, but it's the top string that I'm altering to give different tones and textures th throughout the song. But we covered it up with harmony vocals while I was retuning the guitar. And it, it was a bit of a, an <laughs> a, a exercise to do, but we got yeah. away with it. People have, but I think that's a problem in itself, is that I think that people find it difficult to play our songs because they don't know what the tuning is and therefore they're difficult to work out. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, that's an interesting dynamic, uh, you know, to have in, in the creative uh, approach, you know, um, you know, looking at the album cover, you just showed, I mean, the, the idea of, you know, just kind of a, a motorcyclist with looks like a backpack on and, you know, you've got the sunset and just, taking it all in the magic of it all. I mean, it, it, it has a, the, the, there's a mood that I get just from the album cover alone. And I, I wonder if that speaks to kind of what is being conveyed musically, you know, um, you know, just that, that looking it back. Certainly does. It certainly does. Uh, the album sleeve was taken by a photographer who is the son of my partner. He mm -hmm. lives in South Africa. He was born uh, in America uh, so he's got dual nationality, but he uh, moved back to moved to the UK when he was 11 years old and then moved to South Africa. And he's got his family over there. And my partner, Marianne, said, should we go over and visit Richard? And I said, yeah, fine. But I'd love to I wonder if I, anybody knows who we are. I said, maybe I can get some shows while I'm over in South Africa. So I got in touch with a DJ called Shiloh Noon, very strange name. Mm. And I said, can you set me up with some shows? It was six weeks to go. He came up with four shows. It was short time to publicise the shows. The first one I did entirely on my own. But then a bass player called Skulk Joubert came along and said he wanted to play with me. And I'd sent him a list of songs and he knew the notes perfectly. And it was an amazing experience. But I was astonished at the fact that at the last show in Stellenbosch, which is about an hour outside of Cape Town, we drew 400 people for a nighttime show in the open air. And I was absolutely amazed that that many people knew who I was. And it was very, very flattering. And after the show, chatting to the people from the audience, they, they said, you have no idea how big straws were in the 1970s, the early 70s, with albums like Grave New World and Bursting at the Seams, because they were the songs that we were listening to throughout the apartheid troubles, and they gave us hope and spiritual 
uh, spiritual sat you know spiritual support and so that's why the, the the song the songs were so important to them uh that's why we ended up in cape town yeah that's amazing i, I know that there's been some uh conflicting reports online you uh, you actually addressed it with an official statement um dealing with uh, dave lambert and Chaz Kronk, uh, have, has there been any communication since the statement was issued? And is there, are there still no plans for them to, to show up with you in Capri? Uh, I, I offered them the opportunity of taking part in the last, uh, in the, my last show, but they declined. They asked for, Dave Lambert especially asked for, he wanted to know the, line, the lineup of the, who was going to play. He wanted to know the songs we were going to do and how much money it was going to get. And I wrote back a, a very detailed letter telling him exactly what the whole score was. And he declined to take part in it. And Chaz followed suit. Uh, I haven't heard from them since. Um, um, so uh, um, it, I... <laughs> I don't lie, draw a line under anything. I never have done, but it just so happened that I think I better explain why it, why why it came about that we were in South Africa. Yeah. Uh, following that little tour that I did, uh, a documentary maker called Neil Van de Venter approached me and said, "I would love to make a, a documentary about Straubs and the impact it's had or the songs have had around the world." would you consider recording an album in South Africa with South African musicians? And I said, oh, sounds like a good idea. Uh, and so I, I phoned up Blue Weaver and said, what do you think? And John Ford, and they said, great idea. And so that came about, and uh, it just so happened that Blue Weaver produced the previous Straub's album that came out. And so it was more convenient that he continued as, as uh as, as the producer of the album, of, of those recordings. And also, John Ford was the last person that I wrote songs with when, when the album Settlement came out. And so it was just continuity from the last album. And there was nothing untoward about it. And we went over to South Africa. It's it incredibly expensive to fly over there. It's, it's, not, it's a long way. It's, it's a 12-hour flight. So... Yeah. It's, for us, that's a heck of a lot of money and a heck of a lot of time. For John Ford, it would have been 18 hours flight. It's mm -hmm. unbelievable, the distances. And so the album was made with, with, with us together, but with South African musicians. And all the time we were in the studio, we were being filmed recording those songs. It wasn't as though they were hitting big lights up to make it, you know, to help the cameras. It was all very, you know, little tiny handheld cameras, but it was there to capture the atmosphere in the studio. But the other thing about it, which people don't realise, is that the studio, the Academy of Sound Engineering, is actually a working college of sound mm. engineering. And so all the time that we were there, in the control room, there were a dozen students watching what we were doing and recording because it was invaluable experience for them. Because nowadays, when kids make records or want to do their recordings, they use their computers to do it. They'd never set up in a studio. So yeah. they'd never seen a band recorded live in a studio before. So it was wonderful for them. 
and they came and helped set up the mics. They set up, moved the mic cables. Uh, the engineer would say, can you shift the mic on that snare drum to go, I want to change the sound of it. Change. So they were learning about that. And all the time we were learning from them when we stopped at lunchtime and had a McDonald's and, and fries. Uh, we were all together <laughs> and they were telling us what sort of music they were into and we were telling them how we started out and and it was just a one big lovely happy two weeks it was 14 consecutive days from 10 o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night I was absolutely shattered at the end of it <laughs> but it's a wonderful experience and I think the atmosphere comes out on that record because we wanted it to sound like a live record and that's what it does sound like yeah i was going to ask you about you know and you captured it so well the the importance of south south africa and the, how you know recording in a certain place can inspire and and the atmosphere that comes across and, and boy you you sure captured all of that and and uh, i guess you know is it is that part of you know being an artist too is trying new things and 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 you know sometimes you know there is a change of lineup but for whatever reason but you know you do something new and it, and it keeps you and keeps things fresh uh we, we've always moved around the world recording mm. uh the first album we made with sandy denny back in crikey 1967 yeah. was recording in copenhagen and yeah. so it, I, I started out my first recordings were in copenhagen we went back to copenhagen to record hero and heroin we recorded another album in holland uh, we we recorded all over the place. I've recorded in America, uh, up in the Caribou. Uh, I recorded up in the up in the stu Caribou studio. I've forgotten what it was called now, but you know we have moved around, and you do get a different feel for doing that. It's inspirational. Yeah. It really is. It does change the way you, not necessarily the way you play, but it, there's a there's an atmosphere around you which takes it away takes it out of the norm and you you put it you don't necessarily put on your best performance but it changes definitely changes the the style of what you're doing yeah i love that yeah is there uh, any song on on the new record that really stands out to you as really um as as a favorite uh, I, I, i've got to say it, well, you you tell me which one you like. <laughs> no, I, I I forget which song this is, but I heard this. It's just such an incredible line. You said it's hard to see a stop sign when you're walking ten feet tall. I just really thought that was a great. I don't know. I like it, it has a, a sense of humility about it that. I really um, that really grabbed well, that, me. That comes from the magic of it all. The song, which is yeah. a travel log, if you like, about about where we've been around the world. And an eat the way in which the band evolved. You know, I said, meet me on the mountain, behold the view below. Pirates in a pantomime. That's, you know, I remember in the early days, Rick Wakeman went off and did, actually took part in a pantomime in England. So that's a little, little subtle reminders of, of things like that. But then it goes on talking about the fact that we were always looking to climb on top of that imaginary wall there was always in front of us there was we wanted to get higher we wanted to get better we wanted to play bigger places and all the time you're reaching out for that and so that but there's always a barrier in front of you you can't see it it's an imaginary wall so you're always trying to climb to the top of it so that comes out in the song 
And then it goes in towards the end there when I look back on it. And the most stupid thing our management ever did was to move us away from AM Records and, mm. and to AM. Nobody ever left AM unless yeah. they got kicked out of the door. Right. But for some reason, our management, for financial reasons, moved us away. And it was the worst thing that ever happened. But that's referred to. Uh, we could have banked a gold mine, but then the bank went bust. The management decided after that, our record sales went down and they said we we're withdrawing support for the band. And that was the end of the band in the 1980s. So, and, you know, that's when I brought, bring in that line. It's hard to see a stop sign when you're walking 10 feet tall. We were walking up there and suddenly, out of the blue, uh, management called me in and said, Dave, we're winding up support for the band. We're not supporting you anymore. And I said, wow. well, what do we do with the new album we've made? They said, forget it. Mm. Uh, we just finished a studio album. They said, forget it. And so that was it. And so I then took a 20-year sabbatical, as I call it, and went into the radio business for 20 years in the 1980s and 90s and didn't play guitar, didn't play a guitar at all, really. Wow. Well, for, to not play, I mean, was that just, was it a hard thing or it was just you, you were just, you were just simply no, in a different place? I was so sickened by the decision yeah. that the management made and so upset by it. But I'd already been producing a radio show for Danish radio. Mm. And people don't know this, but from 1967 through to 1973, I was producing a weekly radio show for from the, the studios of in London studios of Radio One, the biggest radio station in, in England. I was producing a radio show for to be played on Danish radio. Wow. <laughs> and so amazing. I, I I got every I was sent because of that, I was sent every record. I was the producer of the show and a friend of mine was the presenter of it. And he went on to be the produce, the presenter of the BBC Radio One's Top of the Pop show. That's as amazing. a result of working with me on that radio show. So he went on and had a huge success with that. And I listened to every rock record that came out. I was sent every rock record because we were the main listening thing for Dane for Danes. It was necessary for them to find out what was going in London on in London to listen to us. So I got the first copy of Tommy. I got the first copy of <laughs> the, Cat, the new Cat Stevens album. The, the, you know the Mona Bone Jack on. I got the, all of those albums. I got uh, before they were even released, and so I learned a hell of a lot by producing that radio show about yeah. what was going on in music because I was choosing the music for the show. That's amazing. Yeah, oh you were still, still surrounded by music. Definitely. Yeah. What what yeah. was it like working for Jerry and 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 Herb? I, they, they're one of my favorite labels. Um, they unfortunately uh, were dissolved back in 1998, 1999. Um, what were they like as, as label bosses they, for you guys? Absolutely wonderful people. We we only ever met up with Herb Alfred once, and we walked in there, and there was this unbelievably good-looking man. It, you know, it's very difficult to explain. He was he was extraordinarily good-looking, but he was absolutely charming. And he said, "Hi guys, really lovely music you're doing for us, and thank you very much for all you're doing." And we spent about an hour or so with him, and he was absolutely wonderful. And when we were leaving the, the label, Jerry Moss took me out for lunch and said, Dave, you don't, you should, we don't want you to go. We seriously, we're about to break the band huge. 
after Hero and Heroin, the next album you'll make will be absolutely enormous. And I said, Jerry, there's nothing I can do about this. Sadly, my management owned my publishing as well. And uh, that, that I can't get out of that arrangement. And so we had to leave and I, it, I was utterly disillusioned. But they were absolutely lovely people. Just, you know, it's it's amazing getting a glimpse of even you know just the the tensions you know the various aspects of the business even in those early days you know I mean it, it, you know you you of course lived it um, what was it like working I mean the early days working with uh, Rick Wakeman and and you know Tony Visconti but what were they like in, in those that early era you know their approach to creativity how would you sort of describe them both well it, it's quite an interesting evolution because. Tony Visconti, our first producer was a guy called Gus Dudgeon, who went on to produce Elton John. And we were the second album he, he produced. And A&M had heard the album we made with Sandy Denny, loved it, wanted, wanted to sign us with Sandy Denny. But by that time, it took so long uh, through the negotiations that Sandy Denny left us and went off with Fairport Convention. Mm. And AM said, well, we're not sure we want the straws. You'd better make a single. And so they sent us $15,000 over and said, make a single. And so Gus Dudgeon was chosen as the producer because he happened to live in an apartment block on the ground floor of the, the same block where my partner, Tony Hooper, who was a singer with the group, he lived on the top floor. And so that's the only reason we knew Gus Dodger, because he happened to be in the same block that Tony was in. Mm. So we went down and played Gus our songs. And he said, I love those two songs. And he chose Oh, How She Changed and Or Am I Dreaming? And said, we'll do those in the studio, but we need to get an arranger in. I've got, just met up with this guy called Tony Visconti. He's just come over from America. And I think he's the guy we should use as the arranger. And so this was Gus Dudgeon's second, beginning of Gus Dudgeon's second album. And it was the first, second arrangement that Tony Visconti had ever done. The first orchestral arrangement he'd done was for Billy Fury, believe it or not, an mm. English rock wow. and roll singer. And so that was Tony Visconti's first one, first one he ever did when he came to England. And we got on famously with Tony. Uh, we made the album. But then through the album, Gus Dudgeon kept singing to me. Uh, I said, I can't hear my vocals. And he said, your voice is crap, man. So <laughs> I said, man. Oh, man. Oh. I said, they're, they're my songs. He said, your, your, your voice is crap. I said, bring the voice up. He said, no, they can read the words on the sleeve. Oh so those, <laughs> that was Gus Dudgeon's actual, oh. <laughs> those were his actual words. So oh, I fell out him. So I fell out with him, and then we decided to have Tony Visconti as, as produ our producer. And yeah. it was different, different, uh, two different people. Gus made a wonderful job of sound. He was incredible with sounds. Yeah. Tony Visconti, though, had, uh, had feel for the song and understood the song, and that was the difference. And at the same time as that happened, uh, we were the first album, Straubs, came out. And we were invited to do John Peel's programme on a Sunday afternoon called Top Gear. And we were asked to do a song called The Battle from, from that album. 
And uh, Tony Visconti said, well, you'll need a keyboard player for the session because we used a keyboard player on Alan Hawkshaw on the album. And so he said, I've got this young guy I've just met uh, who uh, I think he'll be ideal for it. And then he came with this six foot six tall bloke with long blonde hair, <laughs> skinny as a rake, uh, and who sat down and played it absolutely perfectly. And afterwards, we went to the pub, had a couple of beers, and I said, well, can we exchange phone numbers? So we exchanged phone numbers. Tony Visconti then said, well, we better start making the second album. He said, we need a piano player. So I said, well, I've got Rick's phone number. Should we phone him up? So Rick came in and played piano on the vision of the Lady of the Lake. That was so successful that I, uh, we, I used Rick's name on the album Dragonfly. I know this is going on for a long time. But anyway, no, I love it. This, well, this is history. This is yeah. I used Rick's name on the album sleeve and said, thanks to Rick Waitman for the vision of the Lady of the Lake. I sent a copy of the album to Rick. Rick wrote back and and with my phone number on it, which he remembered anyway. But I said, he said, and he wrote back and said, thanks very much for sending me a copy of the album. I absolutely love it. It's the first time I've ever had my name on a record sleeve. Wow. So I my phone back and I said, do you fancy having a drink? He said, yeah, okay. So we met up one lunchtime and he turned up with a young girl. And he said, this is Roz. This is my fiance. I said, oh, that's nice. When are you getting married? He said, oh, in two weeks' time. I said, oh, that's a shame. I said, would you like to join the band? And he said, he said, yes, but he said, I'm getting married. I said, well, our first gig is in two weeks' time in Paris. And he said, I can't do it. That's the day we're getting married. I said, well, I've got a good idea. Where are you going on your honeymoon? He said, we're not going on honeymoon. We haven't got any money. I said, well, I've got a good idea. Why don't you and Ros come come to Paris with us on your honeymoon? And so Rick Wakeman's first first gig with us was in a playing in a circus tent in Paris on his honeymoon. <laughs> that's that's, we put, that's we put, an amazing put, story. Had, that's a great story. I love it. <laughs> we, we had we had a Humber Super Snipe estate, which is a huge old lumbering estate. We had a, a double bass strapped to the roof. We had Rick's organ in the back. Uh, and and there were <laughs> five of us in the car, and there's four of us in the car with uh, the three of us, four of no five with with Ros as well, uh, and that was off we drove to Paris. Wow! And that was Rick's honeymoon. That's, that's, that's a fantastic <laughs> I, story. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> they and they made music, beautiful music together. I, I'm, yeah. In many ways, I imagine. Yes. Well, you see that that that's where it all comes from. I'll hold it up yet again. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> there it is. It's beautiful. I love it's, that album cover. It, I love the. It, yeah. it, it says on the uh, on the song "The Circus Tent in Paris." You know, that's what I mentioned. That's why I mentioned that in the in the in the song. Yeah. It was oh, a wow. magic experience. Though I'll tell you more, another story about the circus tent. Yeah. We were playing. It was called the Rock and Roll Circus, and we were playing with. Like band like Pete Brown's Biblocto, you won't know them, but they're, they're English rock bands. But the it was all in a circus tent. And we the, the idea of it was that the bands had to accompany the circus acts. Mm. Okay. So we we were given the child jugglers, the lion wrestler, <laughs> and to, to play to, and the high wire act. Wow. Now. 
the, the lion wrestler, we're playing away and the, the, the guy's got his arm around the, the lion's neck and he's picking up lumps of meat and feeding it to the lion. The lion's lying there <laughs> with his mouth wide open, obviously drugged out of its brain, swallowing <laughs> lumps of meat while we're, while we're playing. Yeah. And you're trying to watch this at the same time as you're watching a band play. So oh, that man. was a strange thing. But when That's we got to different. the high wire, Rick Wakeman had to take off the whole purpose of the high wire act, the whole focal point of it was when the main man did a forward roll with his pole on the wire. Mm. And it all built up to it. And so Rick was looking up and going, dun And then it got more and more tense and tense. And then the guy did the forward roll and Rick went, and we carried on playing. But then the audience broke out and started cheering and waving at us. And I turned around. And Rick was thinking, Rick was going, hey, hey, thinking everybody was applauding his solo. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> uh, there was a strange man who walked on stage with a, with a moustache up here and a walking stick in his hand. It was Salvador mm. Dali who come on stage with us. Uh, oh, oh, wow. <laughs> wow, no way. Oh, wow. So, so there was Salvador Dali. And Rick turned around to me and said, who the is that? <laughs> I said, and he's still playing away his solo. I said, it's Salvador Dali. He said, I don't care who he is, get him off. <laughs> so Salvador Dali was very discreetly uh, walked off stage. <laughs> <laughs> what a story. This we, is like one of the most. In, we bumped into Salvador Dali later in New York, yeah. believe it or not, in, wow. in, in the hotel, the St. Regis Hotel. I was checking in. I felt a tap on my shoulder, shoulder, and this voice said, I love your boots. <laughs> and I had these fancy boots on with pink flowers on a blue background. And he mm. said, I love your boots. And it was Salvador <laughs> That's and he gave me a bottle of wine. <laughs> that's incredible oh man that's an incredible that's the best story ever. yeah yeah that's like a you know <laughs> so, a, you're so, a, so you what you've done you, you've woken me up again now uh <laughs> no i don't mean that but you know you talk about the album the magic of it all we've had yeah. some magical experiences and yeah. this really summed it all up yeah, yeah.